that's the best type of air somebody else's. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 199 is recorded live May 8th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson from the place where water is getting a little warmer and we know about it. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm enjoying the 44-degree water in Lake Michigan. It's just wonderful out there. <laughs> Almost don't need a dry suit. You just need your wet now. Yeah, yeah, we're hitting that wetsuit season. Uh, I We don't have Jim joining us yet. I have an idea he may pop on a little bit later. If he does, we'll let him in. And it is going to be a full episode tonight. We have quite a bit in the news. I don't know what it is up this week bringing all this in, but we'll go ahead and cover it as much as we can. But I tell you, it is that time of the year where I am ready to go do some scuba diving. I, I dropped in at uh, Wolf's, had my tanks topped off. Well, I noticed the river is still up and it's a little cloudy out there. But uh, next week, is uh, several people is going to be off. And hopefully we will be able to get out there and dive hardy. When you say off, is, are you talking about mo- the Memorial Week? or? Uh Ken's got a week off, and that's our normal. Let's go out there and get stuff done. And then, uh, of course, Schultz is off, yep. and uh, I am available. So uh, hopefully we're going to get get wet. Did you see what is floating in the river just above the drawbridge? Uh, no, I have not been up there. I've been in Grand Rapids all day. Okay. What's up there? Well, they've got uh, – looks like they're doing some dredging there by the marina. Oh, yeah. They just got about a $700,000 grant. Up there by the new marina. Is that's what you're talking about then, or did you know that? No, I didn't know that. This is the one on yeah. the, the island there? Well, the, the new one they just put in by the big hotel. Oh, no, no. This is the uh, this is up across from where we do the turkey dive, that marina right there. Oh, oh, they're dredging out there? Yeah, they're dredging out. So it looks Ex- like they're, they're dredging at the end of the slips. I have some friends who, who actually have a couple of the large slips, uh-huh. and the only time their boat leaves the slip... <laughs> is in the beginning of the season going in and at the end of the season going out because it's just they can't get in. You know, they, they have to have somebody pretty much pull them out and they're, they get the prop going and they're churning and making their own trail. Uh, and I know... Well, have, have, you ever seen, have you ever seen the uh, PowerPoint I did on the why the river needs to be dredged? Yes. Did I ever send that to you? Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. That, that's a good reason, too. I sent that all to, to the mayor and a few of the other people. So, But it sounds like they did it on their own. Yeah, well, I'm guessing that this is the marina. It's hard to, yeah. you know, sell a slip for five, six hundred dollars a month when you can't get your boat in or out. <clears throat> yeah, are they going all the way down to Brian's, or did you notice they weren't that far yet? They were right there, just above the drawbridge, and they're working their way. They got the booms pretty much all up and down by the slips, and there's no boats and no slips. Excellent. I, I'd like to see them get the people so they can get out. Yeah, yeah, we'll let them get out and use the slips. So what I'm uh, anticipating is that once that uh, 
they're done dredging, it it might be a good opportunity to quick pop in there and see what they revealed. Uh, it's always fun to do that, but I bet you by now they're getting lots of boat traffic. Yeah, it looked like there was some there's some traffic. In fact, when I noticed I was at the drawbridge, they had it up, letting a sailboat through. Well, where you can sort of fudge that a little bit is if you know anybody who's got a boat there, tell them you do a free hull inspection, which gives you an option to go down and then look around on the bottom. That's a excellent idea. Well, it's good for them and good for you because it's nice for them to know what's under their boat. Yeah. Not to mention you might find something that's useful to you. And then yeah. other people see you and saying, hey, would you come over and look and see what's under my boat? Yeah. Yeah. You might, you might have to sell as a slip inspection because I imagine that all the boats have already been out <laughs> at this point. Well, there's a few things you got to be careful when you do that, though. You know what it is, of course. Most of them have power. And sometimes oh. the GFIs do not work correctly. And that if you're diving under the pier that happens to have a malfunctioning GFI, you can have a very shocking experience. And I saw Mr. Schultz just come on. Yeah, he, he's just joined us. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great, thank you. Sorry I'm late. Was working on the getaway. Uh, no problem. Well, we're, we're live, and we're just talking about, I was telling Mac that in the river right above the drawbridge, they've got some dredging going on. I saw that today um, outside of Harbor Isle Marina. Yes. Did you go to the presentation like you said you were? No, I was trying to solve a problem with the gateway. Ah, okay. I told him that's where you were at. Yeah, he gave you a good cover story. Sorry I blew it. Well, the first article we have up is the Project Aware map. We talked about that last week. And so there in the show notes you can see that. And uh, I kind of like how they've done this. You know, And kind of one of the questions we had is what was the value of logging all those items, but it looks like what they're trying to do is get an idea of a mix of the materials that are being pulled out. So if you look, they have debris types, and they show cloth, plastic, metal, glass and ceramic, rubber, wood, paper, and cardboard, mixed, and other. Uh, and then they show when you zoom in, so if we zoom in to Lake Michigan, you can see that they've had two uh, recorded dives, and this is over three years, which is pretty sad. But like the one in Chicago shows that they had uh, 55 divers, collect 478 pieces of debris and this was from september 17th 2011 and they and they show the results it's interesting you say that though i was looking at the category up there mm -hmm. and just where we're diving in the river i'd say metal glass and ceramic is a large amount you do see the occasional tire and by wood i don't count trees because that's nature so if you yeah. look at the percentages i was looking at percentages are in that's probably true, yeah. but I don't see plastic as a as a pro prominent one like they have here in their uh, in their listing. Yeah, I, and it may depend on where they're at. I mean, they're they're coming in Chicago, so you're. I mean, I hate saying I almost consider those some of those rivers to be more uh, sewers than uh, than waterways. Yeah, well, if they count plastic, you know, as uh, drinking cups and stuff. Now we do see that. Yeah. Well, I, I was I, just trying to figure out how they meant plastic. Yeah. I well, I think plastic pop bottles. Uh, you know, retail okay. bags. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, like like when we see the TV or a cell phone. Uh, but yeah, well, that's a combination of metal and all sorts of stuff. But yeah. okay. 
Uh, we'll have to do that just for fun to see the percentages. Yeah. So what I think what we're going to need to do is I'm going to need to do a little bit more research on how this works. And maybe we'll put together a few dives and just see what kind of surveys. You know, does well, it- I got I got a project coming up that uh, I'm going to need some shore support for on the piers. Okay. I, op- I open mouth and uh, <laughs> told the powers that be that they're so darned determined to try to make a, a lawyer can't jump in at the piers uh-huh. because of the danger. And I said, well, by God, I'll give you a survey of the major points where the kids go in, meaning kids, the young adults jump in, and you'll see there ain't no freaking danger at the key items where they jump in. And that would be a good opportunity to also do this, uh, any kind of debris that is there. Yeah, that'd be a good. Make a total. That'd be a good PR. Maybe get a few divers in there. Also, if we get some well, big, get, video cameras. Yeah, the hard, the hard part. Yeah, I was going to do that. Is I was going to take a grid pattern down of a PVC, ten foot yep. square, but it up against the the pier. I was going to go out and have a, a normal person jump out, so I know the maximum distance out, and then I was going to measure the distance if it's less than ten feet, and normally it is, or whatever it's going to be. And then have a buoy so I can measure the distances at each of the points, plus what kind of obstacles are down there. Because they were espousing people are getting injured out there, and it's like I've never heard a call for EMTs of being injured because they hit something on the bottom. Never. You know, honestly, where people are going to get injured is stubbing their toe on the concrete, which you could do on a sidewalk or anything else in town. Yeah, but that's one of the items, and we'll have to do this little survey thing here with the paper or plastic please and uh, when we do that but keep the other item in mind i'll let you guys know when that's going to happen and if anybody wants to be sure support uh that would be great yeah i bet we can get some volunteers uh, but back to your debris map that's that is interesting yeah i i, I kind of like how they've done it um you know the i like the idea behind it the fact that uh, it kind of gives you a, kind of a waiting between it yeah i i personally don't observe plastic being that high a percentage, so it'd be nice to do an organized review of it and just be able to validate. It would be interesting to see a comparison between 2000, 2010, but I'm sure they don't have that kind of data yet. No, it didn't look like they're getting that much. I don't know if they just haven't been entered in properly or what's up. But Well, uh, we should be able to do that at the piers. Yeah. Well, and also I don't know if there's requirements that it has to be a certain number of divers or a certain time, or can you just count anything? Because... Gosh, you know, you're getting three dives in a week. That I would call ecology dives. Well, yeah, and like this, they had 55 divers, uh, and that is an ecology dive type item. If you're doing that, God, I mean, what would ours be? Looking at the last uh, ecology dive, I'm looking at for 55 people. I'm looking at the quantity here, and it's like, duh, we had some divers almost get all all that by themselves. <laughs> well, you know, well that that tells me about that. You know, that other top secret project that I'm I'm working on. We'll have to, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's leave yeah. that alone and talk to about it later. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we'll have to get that one going. Okay. Next one up is the Bali dive boat skipper. If you remember a little while back, we had those seven Japanese women who uh, were diving and they got left behind. The accident left two of the seven divers dead. Five others were found after a search during a hearing in a district court in Dispensar. A government prosecutor alleged that the 30-year-old captain changed his boat's location without waiting for the divers to surface. Based on the accounts of the five divers, prosecutors said the group signaled after a 40-minute dive off the island of uh, Nusa Lebengang. 
uh, late in the afternoon of February 14th, but the boat was nowhere to be found. Unable to afford a lawyer, the boat skipper appeared in court alone. When the presiding judge asked if he understood the content of the indictment, I didn't leave them where they were diving. I lost their traces, then tried to search for them, but I couldn't find them. And that was his comment. According to Japanese Time, the captain earlier told police investigators after the dive entered the water that the sky turned cloudy, so he decided to locate them by following air bubbles produced on the water's surface, but heavy rain fell obscuring the bubbles. I, I can see his, his viewpoint, but he obviously didn't do that very much. And again, that's when you have a recall device. Yeah, it just doesn't sound like uh, there was a lot of uh, professionalism involved. You know, it was probably a little bit of casual. Hey, I got a boat. I'll just throw some divers on it. Yeah. Make a little bit of money. Well, we've seen when we look at a lot of the uh, Asian aspects that they don't have quite the same laws. And I'm, I don't know if it's not they don't have the laws, but they don't have the enforcement of the uh, Sioux. Yeah. You know, over yeah, here, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, you know, it, it rained and you don't get to go in because it got cloudy and the, and the water got turbulent and opaque. So you sue because, hey, I didn't get my dive like you promised. Well, another reason to own your own Too boat. <laughs> and then this is one that I didn't make the show notes, but if you look there in Skype, we've got it. This is the Yellowstone trout. This is a follow-up from last year. Uh, scientists kill off millions of invasive lake trout. Um, the trout appeared uh, a couple decades ago. Someone illegally introduced the non-native lake trout into Yellowstone Lake in 1994, and the fish spread quickly across the 132-square-mile body of water. They said they can grow to several feet long and weigh as much as 30 pounds. Government scientists now say the lake trout are on the decline, but they're trying to weigh whether the efforts are worth the $2 million a year annual cost. Uh, the, the trout are... The trout are competing with the native cutthroat trout, uh, which they say contributes to $30 million recreational fishing industry in the Yellowstone Park. Okay. We lost your audio totally. I did for a while. Did you realize that? Yeah, it got quiet because uh, so that's why I figured something had happened. Well, I'm, I'm looking at this. and On one hand, I understand the aspect about the uh, recreational fishing, but some guys I know would kill to get a fish several feet long weighing 30 pounds. Well, and that's kind of the point. I think that's why somebody introduced it. I'm sure there was uh, somebody. I don't think it was an accident, I should say. It's not like somebody just dropped their pet trout <laughs> out there in the lake. Uh, I think somebody was trying to create uh, a nice sport fishing habitat for themselves. Well, they, they're aspect of talking about the animals, including the grizzlies, bald eagles, and osprey feed on the cutthroat trout. Well, I bet they feed on these too. Well, I mean, the part of the challenge may be, are they adapted to fishing for them? I mean, is that something that the bears are conditioned to? Well, if they're going upstream to the rapids, I, you know, it seems like I don't know if the bears look for a particular type of fish or just a big one coming my way. You know, eventually, you know, natural selection is going to have its way, and the bears either figure out how to eat something or they're going to find another diet or, or die off. Yeah. Did you see the picture right there with the four, the four monsters in front of us, the fish? Yeah. Okay. Look at the front fish and look. Right by his pectoral fin, and look straight up. Is that like a lamprey bite? Well, that's what I was wondering. If it was a lamprey bite, or let's see, I got there's a it, zoom. Let me try and zoom in. I was trying to do a carrot. I was trying to do a search on the other fish because it looked like they have little dimples back there too. But that almost looks like an, a, a bite. Yeah, they're saying these are the cutthroat trout. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this should be a pretty closed yeah. system. This particular lake, so there shouldn't be. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess there could be lamprey, but there should, there's, they don't, because don't lamprey come out from the ocean and then they come back in? Yes, but I, I think they're having a problem now that some of them are not having to go back to the ocean. Okay. They're actually starting here and, and staying here. They're hmm. breeding in the, in the streams and they're not going to the ocean per se. Well, that's cheating. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. It's a long swim from here to, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. Well, let's see here. We have the State Department of Land and Natural Resources said it's strengthening its ability to penalize those who intentionally and negligently damage coral. Department says the new rules went into effect Thursday and will improve the state's enforcement and stiffen penalties for damage. They said it takes years for reefs to form and only minutes for somebody to carelessly damage them. In 2009, the state fined a Maui tour company nearly $400,000 for damaging more than 1,200 coral colonies when one of its boats sank on a pristine reef. <laughs> so now if your boat sinks, you're screwed because they're going to get you for damaging something. Yeah. Well, I'm looking Hawaii at that. Hawaii is quite interesting. It, well, couldn't they, didn't they, was was the the bit so expensive they couldn't put the rule here in the article? They said the new rule, what new rule? They said they're yeah. strengthening, strengthening what? It, it, yeah, come on, tell us something. Well, that's one of the comments. It says, so what are the new rules you guys are talking about? And it said, um, so what are the new rules the DLNR and their infinite wisdom and ability are prepared to enforce? Well, if you look, there's a link yeah, down there. They don't there. tell you it's hard to, uh, well, you know, it's a image of the laws in our case. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking. They had another link to the to an article with a similar name. And all of this is the same article, but five days ago. <laughs> ah. And they say, will go into effect. Huh. I, yeah, it's so, yeah, some, uh, I'm going to, you know, be nice. <laughs> I want to rip into them. Okay. And this is a new campaign in the UK. I believe it's actually in Scotland. And what they're saying, which is what you're taught when you go through your Patty or Nowy class, is don't drink too much the night before. And and can't doesn't that advice go for just about anything? Well, unless it's water. Yeah. It says don't drink and dive. This is from the Eye Mouth and St. Abs. The police in Scotland have urged people not to drink before they go diving off the coast on the Scottish borders. Particularly, they want to highlight concern for those who consume alcohol the night before a dive. Sites near Eymouth and St. Abbs in the southeast Scotland are very popular for the sport. Police are targeting a wide range of local businesses in order to get their don't drink and dive message to as many people as possible. The PC Richard Townsend, who developed the initiative, said many of those who come in the area are highly experienced and well-equipped for what can be a dangerous sport. One issue, however, is that some divers drink on the night before the dive, and this can contribute to increasing the risk as divers. Don't you think that's a common sense aspect that people know that and they just ignore it well, yeah, for I, whatever reason? Well, he, he pointed out these people are highly experienced and well-equipped. So unless, you know, and of course over there that's probably what the, the British Subaquatic Association is mostly the training. So unless it's missing from their training, which I doubt it is, then this is people choosing to ignore it. And case in point, uh, not, not to pick on groups because – but skydivers, they party hardy, <laughs> and some guys will be up at the crack of dawn with a hangover. And maybe when your head really hurts, is not a good thing to be jumping out of an airplane. Well, you, you talk about task loading, which I imagine both skydiving and scuba diving have in common when things go bad. 
and you yeah. are at a decreased capacity to handle those situations and make the right decision. And people do it. And drinking and driving. That's, that's a no-brainer, but. Oh, yeah, that one's, yeah, because this one they're talking about the night before. So at least you had eight to ten hours, maybe, or two to three hours to try and recover. But drinking and driving, there's. You know, I think normally for flying, they, they used to call it eight hours. Yeah. Eight hours. I think for, for your flying, it was always eight hours from bottle to the throttle. Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully it's not the pilot. <laughs> that, that, that's a problem. <laughs> but uh, that's a, it's a new campaign, so follow your training. I don't know any of any anybody in our club who ever does that. You know, you know our, that doesn't that does not have a, a a good time between when you don't drink till you do dive. Yeah, I, I think everybody in our club has always used at least nine or ten hours at the minimum. I think that's saying something more about the members in our club than divers in general. Now, was that always I, the well, case? Okay. If you go up to Sheboygan, if I go in a time machine, I go to Sheboygan twenty five years ago. Is that how it was? Yeah, well, for our club members, I would say that's the way it is. We just never really went up there and hooped it up. Uh, you know, you can have a beer or two, but oh, okay. I've never seen anybody get blown yeah. away because you got to, you know, you got, hey, I got to go diving in the morning. I don't have time to have a hangover. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been pretty well, that's good. We're di- go ahead. I think that's because we're diehard divers and more than we're diehard drinkers. Or we're not party animals. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you there um but i have been on some trips where we've had a couple hotel rooms full of divers and there were some divers who partake of a little too much no matter what the situation was and the way those divers paid is that they were hung over in a boat and never got in the water yeah so they did a smart thing and and not dive but they did miss out plus they looked pretty damn ugly too Well, next one up, we have. If they do have any any documentation of time between diving and drinking, you know, I'm going to bet that Dan does. Yeah, you know, and probably maybe their accident reports because I'm thinking by the time it gets to Dan, it's going to be a bad situation. So it'd be interesting to see where that comes into effect. Uh, I do remember an article in the last couple of weeks where they're talking about fatalities on rebreathers, and they're because there's such a narrow statistical population of accidents but there was a high percentage of drug related people who had uh, actually gone into the water stoned and then did things like not check their gear properly or turn valves on and ended up dying from it now that you said that i did look up alert diver online for dan and it said when i go on dive vacation we often have beers or cocktails after diving because this is the opposite idea is not only can should you drink before you dive, but can you drink after you dive? And it said, uh, I said, are you suggesting drinks between dives? Is that a bad idea? It said, simply put, alcohol and diving are not compatible. Cause depression of the central nervous system, impairs judgment, reduces reaction time and coordination. Often the individual is not even aware of the degree of impairment. In a review of 15 studies on the effects of alcohol and performance, um, they found that in roughly 50% of all accidents in people of drinking age, uh, authors report alcohol is associated with up to 80% of all drownings in adult males. So that's not diving, that's just in general. Well, it's a drowning of adult males and we're talking diving. Okay. Well, yeah, you take a look. How many snowmobilers when they lose their, their vessel or their snowmobile is because they were drinking? 
a lot of them. Yeah. Or they fall off the boat because they were drinking a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you when I've worked the beach as a uh, law enforcement individual, how many times we had to yank people out of the water. And their worst, you know, here's a scenario, and I've seen this probably a dozen times. You have three drunk friends. Two are drunk to the point where they can hardly walk. One is nearly passed out. The two mostly drunk friends are going to help out the passed out drunk friend by by cooling him off in the water and cleaning off the puke on his front. (laughs) And then so you've got three people who can't keep themselves up all in the water flopping around. And then you've got to convince them out. And they will argue of why they should be going into the water. And then nine times out of ten, they go deeper in the water instead of coming on shore, which is a whole other situation. And then the next day, they wonder why they ended up visiting the concrete bunker. Yeah. Uh, they do have some stats here. They talked about uh, diving is significantly compromised at blood alcohol concentration of 0.04, which can be reached by a 180-pound man consuming two 12-ounce beers in an hour on an empty stomach. Well, yeah, but I would never consider diving after consuming that. And you know, I, I would have to say, I, and I'm, I'm not a teetotaler, but I don't drink an awful lot. But if, you know, if I'm on vacation... <laughs> That I might have two or three. Bullshit. Well, that's a little out there. Bullshit. <laughs> the night before. Well, it was interesting. Talk about the situational awareness, protective inhibitions are reduced even at lower levels. Yeah. And they said it also contributes to fluid loss, uh, which then increases dehydration, which then creates. Other issues such as fatigue, drowsiness, and can mimic uh, DCS. I was going to say that fluid loss, dehydration are significant contributors to DCS. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it's a well. They and if you follow those rules, not only is it alcohol, but caffeine, coffee, caffeine. Yep. soda, sweetened drinks. It was interesting. So Dan does have something to say about it. Yeah, always a good resource. Uh, the USS Monitor Lab in the Newport News Museum is to reopen. If you remember when we had the government shutdown, they shut down the museum. And it doesn't seem like they they opened it back up until now. The uh, Mariner's Museum reopened its giant USS Monitor Conservation Lab this week after no administration which administers the National Marine Sanctuary agreed to provide a one-year funding allocation of $200,000. The industrial-sized complex, which houses a historic gun turret and the famous Civil War ironclad, as well as more than 80 tons of other artifacts recovered from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina wreck, shut down January 8th after several years of dramatically diminishing federal funding. Conservators began bringing it back to life this week after months of focusing on smaller artifacts and a small section of lab that remained open. The lights are on, the webcams are on, we peel back the tarps and the treatment tanks, the USS Monitor Center Director David Corp said. We have a lot of artifacts that need attention, so it's great to be able to get back to work and move the project forward. The January shutdown came despite a bipartisan efforts of the Virginia Congressman delegation, which called for NOAA Director Catherine D. Sullivan late in 2013 to develop a plan for completing the preservation of these nationally significant artifacts. We appreciate the funding constraints that NOAA and other agencies face with these tight budget times and their federally owned National Marine Sanctuary Resources. A letter from the group stated, it's poured us that this tangible history not be left to decay due to lack of funds. I, it's, it's interesting writing up, but I'm, I'm back to archaeology. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't support itself, 
And let's say the monitors are a wonderful cause, national treasure, blah. How many national treasures do we have and should we be giving grants to, which is basically money out of my pocket to them to preserve something like this? It's, I'm just curious, how many people think it's good they do or good they don't? Because well, if it's good for the monitor, it must be good for other items like preserving houses and buildings and well, here, here's the thing. They said, despite providing more than $13 million for the construction of the Monitor Center and the conservation project in the past years, knowing NOAA cannot guarantee annual funding. And what my thought is, is why, and I know why, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the answer, but why is it that we have to have thousands of little point museums if we're going to fund this federally or at a state level, doesn't, shouldn't there be some sort of efficiency? Like you said, if the, if the museums can't self-fund, then there needs something to be a little bit more efficient because you, you can't tell me that, you know, you, you're duplicating staff. You've got staff at the Monitor Museum. What other museums are they staffing? And is that the most efficient way and the best way to use these funds? Yeah, because the money is a grant. It's free, but it isn't. It's costing no. the taxpayers. Well, and then it, when you have, you come to these, these tougher times where there's challenges in spending, uh, they, they go away. You know, working as consultants with many government agencies, I've seen this time and time again, where they'll make plans based on one year's funding, and they'll count on that for another 20 years, and, and there's no guarantees. Here, the, the monitor is a, you know, a national archive. <clears throat> it's, it's irreplaceable. And, it, you know, doing this salvage, recovery, and uh, restoration, I think, is a fantastic project. But Noah needs to get with it and stick with it. I mean, what are they going to? They shut it down in January. You know, what was there any preservation work going on? You know, if those tanks needed to be, say, rotated, you know, was there anyone there doing basic maintenance, uh, or is it just you know the the tours and the other pieces that got shut down? I mean, this is you got to wonder what Noah's doing. They they can't spend the money for preserving, you know, probably one of the premier artifacts, wrecks in our history, but yet they want to expand the uh, NOAA area, the preserve up around Alpena, you know, just just to put more shipwrecks under their control. I think the word these, was... These control. are not historical shipwrecks. These are just, you know... A, a typical shipwreck. I say that as, you know, that may sound stupid, but, you know, they're not in the class of the monitor for by any means. No, you're talking as, as far as historically relevant, structurally relevant. Yeah, unique. Yeah. You know, it, every ship is unique, yes, but, you know, yeah, you, there there's hundreds of shipwrecks still to be located in the Great Lakes or, you know, and to be found and searched and recorded, et cetera. Uh, but yet, you know, Noah wants to, and I think Mac really hit it. It's control. They want to have control of, you know, what's there. They don't want anybody else to be responsible for it. Well, the other issue is, and, and you say the monitor, I would say the USS Arizona is a national treasure. Yes. You know, they're yes. in Hawaii. But how many do we have 
and how many do you have or you add to that every year? And at what point do you stop funding something you originally funded because of something more? Meaning it could grow and grow and grow and grow because it's really important to national treasure. And at what point is it not national treasure? And at what point, how many do you get before you yeah, stop what, funding? When do you, you know stop funding Arizona start funding MaxRec? Yeah. I, I think oh, yeah. <laughs> <the> $450,000 annually, <laughs> I think we could do a pretty good job of conservation on Max Rec. Uh, maybe. You said 150 or 450 450 Yeah, Yeah. 450 would pretty much get us there. Yeah, every year. You yeah. know, 20-year site plan. Yeah. You, you build a bubble. I mean, 100 for you, 100 for me, 100 for Mac. That's three. Yeah. And 150 <laughs> to spend on the wreck. Yeah. I mean, we don't uh, work for free. So no, we have no. to have, you know, somebody's got to be the administrator and get that, you know, administrator salary. And one of us has to be the dive specialist and get that dive specialist salary. And we got a, pr- a preservationist. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's 300 grand right there. I, I just have a trouble with who gets to say what is historical significance? How long is it that? I mean, you look at the first, I think it was the Savannah was the first nuclear freighter we had. It's gone. Mm-hmm. The first nuclear submarine, it's gone. It's like, I thought those were significant. Yeah. Well, it's, it, or it's is a, it only ones that was because of a war or something? Well, the, here's the thing is that why is it if it accidentally sinks and is discovered later, it's significant, but we have no hesitation of something that served its useful life scrapping it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of almost how it, it fell or it got lost and we, you know, it's, you know, something that's four years old is junk. Something that's 40 years old is collectible. Well, I, I, just for us, and I know we're going to make the time go, but archaeology, for example, is interesting. But if it can't stand on its own merits and make its own money, should we support that? And I, I don't understand why we need to support something that can't support itself. Obviously, there's not enough interest by people to do it. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say, I mean, as much as I'd love, I'm, I'm a history nut. I would love to have it all. I don't, I, I think we're way overtaxed as a society as it is. And if we're going to have these, these battles on what's going to be funded, I think that everything's got to be on the table, including these types of programs. National treasures, the key one I always like to come up with or talk about a little bit is Civil War battlefields. They're, they're significant, mm-hmm. you know. And they had monuments, blah, blah, blah. And of the ones we controlled, meaning the states and or the federal government, have you noticed that because of the price of land that those areas have shrunk in size? So if they were really historically and nationally significant, why do we let them shrink in size and sell the land to people who want to build houses and condos? And well, that, that's that's going to get back to the, the, my original question at the beginning, which was, why do we have so many museums? And it's because these are the pork that your local congressman needs to get in his area because you're going to tie that the monitor is part of the culture of that area, so that's where the museum needs to be. So instead of having some regional museums where you could gain some efficiency in size, you're going to have a bunch of these single-point museums. It's interesting, and we could just go about oh yeah, beating them up. <laughs> I, I want to go see it. I, you know, I would donate money, which I have to some of these groups. Uh, you know, I think it's, I, I think it should be preserved. You know, kind of like the Hunley. I mean, some of these are unique, but maybe you know, because the Hunley's got its own museum. That's not in this one, is it? 
Uh, I, I mean, I know it's in North Carolina. Are these in the same spot? No, it's in no, it's in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, Charleston. So you got that. Wouldn't wouldn't that be good just to have like one museum that has got both? Well, it's got the original and it's got the mock-up. Yeah. So no, no, we're not we're not going to solve it here, but we can sure come up with some good ideas. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can 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 I can I have one item you forgot that we should talk about because I like this one. Sure. State police and the UP find stolen guns. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I, I skated right on over that one. Yes, you did. Uh, it's in the notes. I mean, we we have such a full news week here. I'm just I missed it. So yeah, let's go back and we'll run to it. They didn't have a lot of details in it, but it just reads like you could build a novel just off of this. So this is in Wakefield, Michigan. A team of state police divers went underwater in the Upper Peninsula to recover a safe containing stolen long guns. Authorities were led to the Plymouth Open Pit Mine near Wakefield. That's where a man suspected in a series of break-ins told police they would find a gun safe. Good weather on Sunday allowed the divers to recover the guns within hours. I didn't take it, but you can but find it here. You can find it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah that's Somebody good. told me. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're looking for that, that, that gun. I think I have an idea where it might be. It wasn't me, but. Yeah. Quarries and mines and rivers. Yoo-hoo! Yeah. So I like that. There's yeah. always a chance he'll find something. Well, that's what you're hoping is you're like, gosh, oh, could, man, could you come come across that? So, I mean, because that's like that's like the I mean, you just need gold to be in there along with it. You know, you you find the safe, you get some guns and you find some gold. That would have been perfect. Well, if you find the guns, you can get the gold. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so we, we backtracked there. We had the USS Monitor. Underwater robots give a new perspective on the ocean. So this kind of carries on since kind of our theme is picking on Noah, it seems to be this week, as I wait for the article to come up. And the website's decided it doesn't want to give me anything. Well, mine came right up. Yeah, it's just my internet. I've got some plans on how to fix it. I'm I'm actually going to install three internet connections and bond them together, and which will cost me. Oh, come on! The worst thing about it is it's 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 this fine tuning that all these network providers are doing, which is what's killing this. Have you ever noticed? Just watch when you're surfing and you click on a new site. How many times the site will get halfway to loading and then stop? It's because you weren't quick enough, and they and they ditched you. So you got to refresh, and then it then it gets it. So, okay, so here we go. Underwater robots. Uh, the National Oceanograph- Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration has expeditions that broadcast live from the depths. Much of the work is done at a command center in Silver Spring, Maryland. From this nondescript command center, scientists are leading a large underwater expedition to give the public a front row seat. This is a uh, showing a NOAA mission in the Gulf of Mexico. Marine archaeologists wanted to investigate a large object on the seafloor. Let's see. Catherine Mariza, a NOAA ecologist, said, Everybody's been surprised with what we saw. We expected it to be a shipwreck, and we saw it look like a beautiful flower in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. They call it an asphalt volcano or a tar flower, possibly formed... Uh, out of the seafloor, geological surprise. Live steam stream images sent to scientists and ocean lovers from all over the world during the three-week mission. Camera captured natural wonders like a Dumbo octopus, historic treasures including cluster shipwrecks from the early 1800s. They said the ocean is critically important to understand, yet it's 95% unexplored. So we're out there exploring. All right, you see the video they've got? Did you go through it? I didn't watch the video. Okay. You don't have to watch it, but... Go to, you can move the cursor, mm-hmm. to one hour, 28 minutes, 
and you tell me if you don't like what you see there. That okay. is my dream. Okay. Got to take the time to do it. Okay, One what? dot dot two eight. Okay, let me see as I... Imagine being the first to discover a ship... All right, now i got to follow this and see what's going on here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the live, this is the live stream expedition one. Wow. Thank flowers. Yeah, it's got the video of the guy. The, the guy looks like he's bored to death. You move that cursor to one dot dot two eight, and you will see why I like to dive, especially rivers, even though this is not a river. Yeah, it, it won't let me do it. My connection's not what? quick enough. Oh, yeah. It's it, it. What it wants to do is you. You've you have the fancy fast connection. It wants to load the whole video before it will get me to that point. Jim, did you see it? No, I I went to the site and the video was loading and it was taking forever and I had to okay. watch the commercial and so I just canceled it. Yeah, I am so, I am so lucky. I have a high speed stuff. Yeah, here. yeah. You you live in with all the enjoy other it when you get a chance. You look at one, two, eight. Yeah. Okay. I, I will describe the field that I am looking at. I stop framed it. Mm -hmm. Right there, I cannot count the number of bottles and vases. Yeah. Well, if you go to the third. And, and uh, yeah, if you go to the. Just looking me in the face saying. Yeah, let me see. There's, breaking up again. Yeah, it's because I'm loading the photos. It's But uh, if you look at the fourth. I can't say that. The article, it says giant flowers on the bottom of the ocean, and they show four photos. Yeah, because if you like 128, you're going to like that. And then while we're on and it. If you're there, I can't hear you. You can't hear me? <laughs> I got help. Until right you're there, back. I could not hear you again. They're, they were, we're consuming the Internet is what's going on. Don't you love it? So anyway, down the road when you get, take a look at 128, and then look at 130, and then you will see why I dive, and oh, I know why you guys dive. I'm there. I'm there. I just saw it. 128, 128, and 130. Go to 130. Yeah. Looks like one we've seen it. before. Mm. You can't stop streaming it? No, I can't stop it. It's streaming. Yeah. It, it, it's, worth, it's worth to go back to and take a look at that one, but love it. Love those pictures. And it goes right into your next one, too, doesn't it? Yeah, fishermen catch a rare pink goblin shark. No, the, I thought you had one that said live stream expeditions. Yeah, all, all these are pretty much the same. So let me, I, I we can go back to that one. I, oh, crud. I just overwrote the link. Here, that's it's, it's, I got it back. Here, let me load that one and see what it was. A lot of these I was just giving them for some background. I'm going to say... That Noah is in the process of PR and funding because I found about five articles, all with major media outlets, all talking about Noah. And so, like, here's another one: the live stream expeditions, which is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, da, 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 kind of the same old thing. Everybody's been surprised by what we saw. Ninety-five mm -hmm. percent unexplored. Yeah, this is just—it's almost like they took the press release and reworded it. Yeah. And then the giant flower, which is the one that originally got me turned on to this thread. That was interesting. I, I, I like that photo. Uh, so what it appears to be is that there was a, you know, you had some pressure of the seafloor pushing down onto some tar pocket, and it squeezes up and just kind of formed in that flower shape. It was interesting. I saw some video on that the other day when they revealed that, and they were really sort of disappointed when they realized it was asphalt. <laughs> it was neat though yeah but again how freaking deep are they oh they're they were like i was it, it doesn't say here does it 
Uh, th- this is, I think, one of the same expeditions where they had that copper-clad vessel last year in the Gulf. I think this is kind of that same area. About 200 well, miles did... off the Texas coast. Mm-hmm. So there's a cluster of shipwrecks. Uh, were they afraid that somebody's going to go diving on it? Is that why they don't want to tell anyone? Yeah, because what they've been doing is they've been kind of going around these shipwrecks a little farther, and they saw the shadow. So they expected they were going to see part of a another shipwreck. I wonder why all these shipwrecks are in the same spot. I mean, 200 miles off doesn't sound like a common spot. Shipping lane in the old days? Maybe. Yeah, maybe there were some landmarks that people used to line up and follow in. You know what I did not realize? Military action? Military action on a fleet? Could be. I mean, it seems like they would report that, but that, I mean, if I was, if I found three ships in the same area, I would kind of, and if they're the same age, that would be my conclusion. Privateer? Yeah, could be. Scuttled? You know, I I never realized or really thought about how deep the Gulf of Mexico was because I always considered it shallow. Yeah. But it isn't. The deepest point is 14,383 feet. The average depth is 5,298 feet. It's 810 by 300 nautical miles. That's pretty freaking deep. For for that small of a body, then, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, if you had asked me, I would say about a mile deep. Yeah, I never realized it was that darn deep. Huh. That is amazing. Well, and it had to be pretty deep because this next article goes into saying what they found. Fishermen catch a rare pink goblin shark. This was in the Gulf of Mexico. And they before he threw the creature back, he took a photo and sent it to his son, who he thought would find it interesting. And then scientists got a hold of it, and they're like, hey, that's pretty cool. Where did you find that? So that at that point, they didn't believe that goblin sharks would even be there. They didn't think it was deep enough. Typically, the goblin sh- sharks are found off the deep waters in the coast of Japan. And they've also been seen in some Australian waters, but there's the first time in the Gulf. They said a shrimp net was shrimp net was plunged 600 meters in the water before retrieving the thrashing creature. The fisherman Carl Moore may be one of only 10 people to ever see a goblin shark alive. He photographed it to show his grandson who loved the sharks. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't get a tape measure out because the thing's got some wicked teeth. They could do some damage. He quickly pulled the shark back into the water, but not before taking a couple snaps. The shark was found on April 19th, but he only recently reported it to Noah, who scientists were keen to know more. So if you want to know what it looks like, it's a kind of a, God, it's almost, it, it's got a weird protruding snout. So instead of a shark where it seems like the mouth is back in the, the shark, it seems to be up and then the nose just seems to be an appendage above it. It's, got it's sort of like a, like a uh, swordfish almost. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but the, a goblin thing, that's a very appropriate, I, I mean, you look yeah, at it. Yeah. And it it's right in your head. It's like, damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you're once you've got that pictured, you you're gonna know it when you see it. I always love science, though. The goblin yeah. shark was thought to be extinct until it was found in 1898. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. Just lurking around out there. They said its uh, lineage dates back 125 million years. Yeah. Goblin shark fossil been found, giving them the term "living fossil" when describing the shark. They think that its mouth operates like a Venus flytrap, which is probably why they would like to have you know have some video of one alive would help them with that. Because kind of, what that's going on, and I think that's because they thought they were so deep, is that maybe they didn't think it would be able to uh, necessarily see and hunt, so it would just have its mouth open, and then when something got in the area, it would snap down on it. Your next one's a good one, too, though. Let's see. the uh, Megamouth. Megamouth. 
And there was about three or four articles I had on both of these. Some covered both. But this one, Megamouth. So we're, we're, we're staying in the weird and unusual. Yeah. Neat, though. Yep. A rare Megamouth I don't shark know. caught off the coast of Japan. Officials say the 13-foot-long female shark was incredibly rare. They're currently conducting a necropsy on it, which is open to the public. What are they fishing for at 2,600 feet? Yeah, what were you capturing at 2,600 feet? That's a good point. Huh. Yeah, I don't know what you'd be fishing. I mean, are they that desperate that they're fishing that deep? I mean, are they trawling at 2,600 feet? They said the, they were first discovered in Megamouth sharks. You know, we said that the goblin shark was in 1898. The first Megamouth shark was discovered in 1976. Since the discovery of the existence, only 58 have been observed or captured. In 1990, scientists tagged the live megamouth shark and observed his behavior for two days. Researchers noted that the shark spent his days in the deep sea returning to more shallow waters at sunset. Behavior indicates the rare sharks are vertical migrators. Scientists believe the shark's movements mimic the behavior of krill, which is what their main food source, although the megamouth's behavior is similar to other vertical migrating fish, they have distinct differences in appearance. They said most they of these... They sort of remind you of a whale shark. It kind of does, yeah. Yeah, this one, the one they've shown in the photo, it's on a tarp. But, I mean, it's got a gigantic mouth, so the idea is that it opens its mouth and then it's swimming in and sucking in krill. You know what it sort of looks like as a paddlefish, at that, that top picture, how it would open up? Doesn't that sort of look like that? Large open mouth? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not sure whether it was captured alive or dead, but they said it was in good condition. So that almost okay. tells me that a fisherman caught it. Remember when I asked why they were at 2,600 feet? Yeah. Did you see the picture all the way at the bottom? Surrounded by all the shrimp. I wonder if they were shrimping on the bottom with the nets. Oh, the the, the picture at the bottom is, uh, they're showing the, that's the goblin shark. Um, I'm sorry about that, goblin shark, but I wonder, again, yeah, but look, look at all if the they shrimp were on the bottom. With the goblin shark. Yeah, the shrimp in with the goblin shark. They Yeah, he said that he was, he was uh, net fishing at 500 feet okay. when he pulled it up. So it it was caught in his uh, his shrimp net. Okay. What you got to think about it. I mean, if you're a shark, it's like, wow, look at all those shrimp right there. Yeah. And it's coming towards me. <laughs> Being in the Cooper River, having them smack you in the face. Oh, man, those. And they do, too. Yeah. I should have just opened my goodie bag and captured the damn things. Yeah. I don't know. It would have the right paperwork for that. Okay. It ain't no stinking paperwork. Yeah. Diving sites to put on your bucket list, <laughs> even if you don't dive. And let's see if this one will, will load for me any better than the others. Maybe, maybe not. It's around the world. So the, the, so the first spot, they said, was Antarctica. Let's see. So we've got, I don't know how many sites they give us, 10 or 11. So we got Antarctica. But, you know, I, I would dive there. Uh, Riviera. I would like to. I don't want to. I don't want to dig the hole though, or or cut the hole. Do you in the ice? No. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to spend six grand on going there, I think we're going to have some sherpas or something that will will do that work for us. The second one was Riviera Maya, which <laughs> the most more likely. <laughs> yeah, uh, Riviera Maya. I'm going to say that uh, I've been there, not done scuba diving, but it's definitely on my bucket list to go back and visit once Mexico gets gets to being not such a mess. Because you got your cenotes and uh, some cave diving. Point Lobo State Park, California. They said it's home to massive kelp forests. That stuff is interesting. Yeah. 
and then we have Cozumel, Mexico, right there. I mean, if you're if you're going to drop into Riviera Maya, you might as well head over to Cozumel. You're in the same neighborhood. For us, that's like uh, St. Joe to Kalamazoo. And then five is the Salfara Fisher in Iceland. We've talked about this one a lot. The clearest water on Earth, they've said they've dubbed it. Visibility will exceed 300 feet. They said sea life is minimal in the fisher itself. Bright green plant projections called troll hair and other colorful algae make up a compelling seascape. Then they have Port St. John, South Africa. If you want to swim with the sharks, not Chicago style. Galapagos Island. I saw this last night, matter of fact. They were doing uh, some video. Uh-huh. And the guy looked up, and there had to have been thousands of those hammerheads. And it's like, oh, shit, I run out of air. What am I going to do, go up through them to go to the boat? I think not. But that that was awesome. I mean, I, I can't visualize seeing thousands of hammerheads over your head between you and your boat. Yeah, Uh because they they are notorious for being a little grumpy as far as sharks go. That's what I heard. These guys were on uh, rebreathers doing some good video, so they, they you know they can cool it and not draw attention to themselves. But in this same, I bet this is that same grouping of the pictures. They were in the middle of um, bait balls, oh, and how the sharks would go around them, and then the birds would come down. And then if you were a diver trying to video it, the bait ball would come around you and for protection. Oh. <laughs> and then the sharks would come at the bait ball where you were at. Yeah. It was really good. Wow. Uh, the people got out of the water one time because there was just too darn many sharks. I wouldn't have got in the water with that yeah. many sharks. Yeah, you have to have been doing that for a while. And and when you have somebody who has that much experience, uh, we've, we've got, uh, you know, deadless catches back on with their new season. And Sig Hansen, the captain of one of the boats, had a good quote. And he says, the longer I'm out in the water, the more I'm scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and here's, here's somebody who's, who's been in the water since he's 12. And he's in his, uh, I think he's in his late 40s, early 50s now. And uh, you just got to respect that because, uh, you know, the you get too complacent and something's going to happen. Uh, another spot was Barracuda Point, Sepadan Islands, Malaysia. Sepadan? Would you like to be in the middle of all of those barracudas with something bright and shiny on your back? Yeah, this is what this is when you do the old uh, Gilboa trick where you shove some bait in somebody's pocket. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, guys, watch this. You got your GoPro going? You just take that can of Gee Whiz or squeezy cheese and put it all on the guy. <laughs> Makes a good hair tonic. Hair <laughs> tonic. I mean, you can't even count that number of fish. No. No, and that, that's, that's like one of those biting you is a bad day, and there's that many of them. Yeah, that's, you're, that's a bad time. And then Bora Bora, they're saying is good. It's known for its sharks, uh, particularly lemon sharks. And then Pau Pau New Guinea, which, yeah, that would be on there. And then, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I think she had a good good list. This is compiled by Condi Naz Traveler. But uh, I don't know. It seems like there's quite a few that were missing, and maybe some different orders. I mean, they, they didn't mention you, know, you got Great Barrier Reef, you got Turk Lagoon or Truck Lagoon, uh, Tobamore, Tobamore, yeah, uh, yeah. There's just there's there's plenty of them. Okay, let's see what else we've got. Ah, uh, now now we're into something. How about some gold? You up for some gold bars? Oh yes. 
Yeah, the only thing about this one, though, is, again, it's new now because it's been on hiatus because of the lawsuits and legalities. It's, it's one of those, again, how much control does the government want? That's why it's an issue. Yeah, They want the money. Well, they want the money, but originally, I mean, the guy had legal rights to it. It's uh, He got sued by his investors. Uh, and what we're referring to, if I can get the darn thing to load... The SS Central America. Yep, SS Central America and uh, uh, Odyssey Marine Exploration Incorporated, which I've got a few shares of stock in, uh, actually retained some rights, and they were actually doing some surveying. And this was on April 15th. They were surveying, and while they were there, they just had to pick up some of the gold bars that were laying around. And I'd have to say I would agree with them. You're on a wreck, and there's gold bars. You can't leave that. Uh so let's see how many do they say that they got the the they said the steamship was loaded with thirty thousand pounds of gold, which is about thirteen thousand six hundred kilograms. It was sunk in a hurricane off South Carolina, eighteen fifty seven. Yep. And so Odyssey Marine Exploration retrieved five gold bars and two gold coins. One from the eighteen fifty that was minted in Philadelphia. The other from eighteen fifty seven that was minted in San Francisco. So they've got some more. The remaining. Uh, yeah, and kind of going back to what we talked about before, is in 1988, uh, the Columbus American Discovery Group, the ship was found at a depth of 7,200 feet, about 160 miles off the coast of South Carolina. From 88 to 91, recovery operations managed to retrieve gold from approximately 5% of the total shipwreck site, historians have said. Odyssey Exploration now is exclusive contract to evacuate and recover the rest of the American treasure. They said the shipwreck could still contain a commercial shipment of gold that's valued in 1857 at $93,000. Substantial amount of passenger gold valued at 1857 between 250000 and $1.28 million could also be locked in the ship's sunken remains. Just to give you an idea, in 1988, mm-hmm. in that vintage time, they had 39 different insurance companies file suit claiming that they, because they paid damages in the 19th century for the lost gold, they had a right to it. Mm-hmm. And the team argued that it had been abandoned, okay, which you're hit that they won. And then, and then they got 92% of the gold was awarded to the discovery team in 1996. And now you're where you're currently at now at $1,300 an ounce. You've got a couple of shekels down there. Yeah, there's a little bit. Yeah, they said uh, a recovered gold ingot weighing 80 pounds sold for a record $8 million and was recognized as the most valuable piece of currency in the world at that time. Hmm. And there's more down there. Yep. But again, how many thousand feet? Well, let's see what they say. It was wicked deep, I think is what we would call that. A little outside yeah. my diving range. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy spent millions getting it. Uh, I know. It, again, it takes money to make money. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I, I own stock in the company, but Odyssey Marine Exploration has boats or vessels that are capable of, of doing research and recovery at that depth. And they also have rights to lease a couple. So there's about three or four vessels in the fleet that do that type of activity. Uh, 7,200 feet or 2,200 meters. That's yep. 160 miles off the coast of South Carolina. So you're going out 160 miles in a boat that's fairly large. Uh, they did the, they were on the Garsopa, was it last year and year before, they did the silver recovery. Yeah. And if you watch it, Discovery did a program, and they're talking about the amount of cash they're burning through a day just in that vessel 
So even with it being this gold being where it is and having rights, there's still no guarantee you're going to make any money on it. Absolutely. I mean, this is old-fashioned treasure hunting. The only thing is they already know where it's at, which is a advantage whenever you can get it. The USS Central America was 280 feet long, or 85 meters. It was christened the SS George Law when it was launched in 1853. It operated during the California Gold Rush and the Atlantic leg of voyages between San Francisco and New York. Made 43 round trips between Panama and New York before it sank. Can I have some of that? Yeah. No, I'm not. Somebody's unwrapping some candy, it sounds like, and I want some. Chocolate, especially. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think that would get picked up. Wow. I can smell the chocolate. Yeah, it's it's only about two minutes of editing. Uh, okay. Uh, Down to the 9,000-year-old hunting cabin? Yep, 9,000-year-old hunting cabin. I saw this article two or three times. And this goes around where I don't... Uh, if you remember the uh, Ford Seahorses show from about three or four years ago, Mac, you remember there was the... the Call them the, okay. sea, ex- the sea Explorers, that 100-foot vessel that was okay. staffed by uh, teenagers. Well, I have an idea that this is an outgrowth of some of their research. They don't particularly say it, but so what what we're talking about is a 9,000-year-old hunting cabin is underwater. It's a stone structure and a cabin uh, structure used to capture caribou discovered 120 feet beneath the surface of Lake Huron. Researchers say it's the most complete structure of its kind in the Great Lakes region. The only evidence we're going to find of this kind is underwater. This is John O'Shea, an anthropological Archaeologist at University of Michigan who led the project. If it existed anywhere on land, it would have been disturbed by farming. Remarkable structure consists of a lane of two parallel lines of stones leading to a cul-de-sac. Within the lines are three circular hunting blinds where prehistoric hunters hid while taking aim at caribou. So this is kind of like the shooting fish in a barrel. They said that the design suggests hunting was probably a group effort with one group of hunters shepherding the caribou towards the blind while the other group waited to attack. The site was discovered using sonar technology on the Alpena Amberley Ridge, 35 miles southeast of Alpena, Michigan, which was once a dryland corridor connecting northeast Michigan to southern Ontario. In the paper and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, researchers suggest the hunting structures were used in the spring when large groups of hunter-gatherers assembled. They're now looking for remnants of campsites which might provide more information about these groups of people. That's a that's a nice step. I mean, it's you don't get a lot of bottom time, but at least you can still get Not, down there in gear. I'm still. How could they make that kind of decision by looking at rocks covered over with zebra mussels? mussels? And again, I, to me, I'm just surprised they didn't say. And this is another warning about global warming. I mean, <laughs> once that was dry land, and now it's underwater. My God! You know, don't I, the reason they're not saying that is nobody would do any sort of conservation if that was a choice. You can live in Michigan with a glacier 100 feet thick, or you can have some nice green ground where the grapes grow. Not much of a choice to me. Yeah. So hopefully they get some information. It, uh, this is a kind of a, a light article. And then how about this? It's not quite a 
scuba story, but the tunnel, the tunnel that connects Great Britain and France together is now 20 years old. That does not even seem possible to me. It seems like they just opened that up not too long ago. Yeah. Now you fill that with water. You got a great cave dive going on. A good treasure dive, too, because you're going to have all those sunken cars and trains. <laughs> You'll be able to recover a lot of things. Yeah. I bet the water would be fairly clear, too, in the tunnel. Or just block it off and let it go 200 years, and now you got another uh, national treasure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 31.4 miles or 50.5 kilometers is how long it is. It's considered to be one of the seven modern, uh, what do they call it, seven wonders of the modern world. Let's see. They give a little bit of stats. We'll have this in the show notes if I ever get show notes posted. Uh, it runs 40 meters under the seafloor, and it was finished a year late. The cost was $4 billion, which I a think— A couple of shekels. Yeah, but you, you know, in, if you were to do that today, that'd be 12 to $20 billion, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And then guess what year it was when it started to make money? 2012. After Took a while to get after, the cost down, huh? Yeah, after well, after declaring bank nearly declaring bankruptcy and restructuring debt in two thousand seven. Yeah, well, that's one of those things. Once you get into it, you can't really stop unless you're just going to write off all that money. So interesting project. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. We got some photos. This first article, which if you're into making your underwater photography look as as good as possible. It's from DIYphotography.net. They have how to end it underwater photography with Lightroom and Photoshop. And uh, we, I won't read the article. You'll have to go and find it. But kind of the brief overview, you got to start with a good photo in the first place. But what they're able to do, and I, and I use both of these tools, uh, and I know that you can do it. And it's getting that way. Any photos you see that are really good on the Internet now, have all been run through these this point of software. It's it's to the point now where we're oversaturating photos. <laughs> well, like well, like take take a look at the photos. You got the the one that's especially relevant is you've got the the girl. She's kind of swimming underwater in the bottom, kind of almost looks like she's doing like a little bit of a side stroke. And the the f- top half of the frame is it without any color correction or enhancement. And then you look at the bottom. And it looks like they're in Bahamas. So up above could be Michigan. <laughs> Bottom is Bahamas. <laughs> and now we've got the School of Deep Sea Diving. They have some underwater photos as well. Again, we'll have these in the show notes. And some of these, you can't even tell what they are. Like a, the pirate fish photo. Do you see that one, Mac? Hello. Did what, I lose what? you? Nope. In, We're in, sort of muted there. So you can't hear me? I can hear you now. Well, you got to tell me when it gets quiet. <laughs> I heard you the whole time. Oh, okay. Uh, but if you if you look down at the, the just some amazing shots, the especially good one is they have the, the crocodile, Nile crocodile, in uh, Botswana, Africa. That's one you wouldn't want to run into. No, not hardly. But some excellent underwater photos. And then they've got one on the, uh, there's a question that somebody asked, and they said, what is the world's largest barrel sponge? And I've got two links. So you take a look at the first link. And that shows a barrel sponge, and it's an older black and white photo. And they talk about this barrel sponge and how bad the divers were because they probably touched it and, and killed it. And they said that was probably it. And they said it was probably 2.5 meters or 8.5 feet. And so I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, they said that it was uh, 
divers visiting Curaçao in the Caribbean in the early 1990s. Unfortunately, frequent touching by scuba divers likely caused lesions that led to infection in the sponge tissue, which is shown as a dark spot in the photo. By mid-May 1997, only a large piece of the outer edge of the sponge remained. Other barrel sponges in the area were not impacted, suggesting it was indeed the touching by divers that led to the sponge's demise. So it's allergic to neoprene. It must be. And I'm, and I'm always, I'm, I'm not advocating people harassing the wildlife, but how can something that can survive a hurricane die when somebody touches it? Yeah, there'll be some marine biologists calling me and complaining. But And then this next link, if you go down and look through the photos, there at the bottom, come on here. Oh, what the heck. Go back, get the link. You will see a barrel sponge. Oh, not even at the bottom, right at the beginning. That almost appears to be that big. So this is in Myanmar. They're doing research to see underwater treasures. And the reason I brought it up is because that first thing was a barrel sponge. We also have a video of the week. Now, next time you're in Bob's boat, See if this is what you you think you're seeing. You see the video? Either of you? Hello, you guys there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm listening. Oh. You see the video? The video of the shark eating the boat? You got that I right. saw it on the news. Really? Yeah, that's not really I the... thinking of Sweeney. Yeah. Well, that's that's about the size boat they're in. Uh, rigid hull inflatable. I don't say how long, but this one might even be a little bit longer than Bob's. But uh, the shark, they said they did not provoke the shark. He grabbed onto the side and uh, did a little deflating. Why wouldn't they bop on the nose? Ah, who knows? Giant fish then ripped open one side of the boat as the crew watched in horror. They managed to make it back to shore with a semi-deflated raft, staying afloat after a completely unprovoked attack. Said the great... White sharks can grow 21 feet in length and are one of the most feared creatures in the sea, but they rarely attack for no reason, with experts claiming this particular shark was more likely curious as to what the boat was rather than attacking it on those or those on board. They just thought it was chew toy. Yeah, guys are just taking pictures as it's biting their boat in half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't say what they were doing out there. They, they're harassing the shark, and he got yeah. pissed and came over and yeah. says, screw you guys. It's kind of like you go into the the neighbor's backyard and poke the dog to the fence and see what he does. Yeah, they're all wearing wetsuits, it looks like. Is that a wetsuit or a dry suit they've got on? Well, that does it for Scuba the News. And if I ever get around to it, we'll have the show notes. You can go to scubaobsessed.com and check them out. Now, let's see. Since last week, Mac, did you get any diving in? Oh, I might have got in. I was doing more work than I did pleasure diving. Though I was down in Michigan City diving. Oh, work diving I, instead of pleasure diving? Yeah, yeah. It's it's more profitable. <laughs> uh, I was out diving down in the uh, marina, doing some uh, prop inspections and things like that. Ah. I mean, somebody had to do it. They called me. Said, "Hey, would you come down?" I said, "Twist my arm." Yeah. Yeah, twist you your arm. money give... or food? And they said both. Well, there you I, go. I definitely got went down there then. Yeah, you got air. Did you get air too, or did you have to bring air? Well, that was part of the funding I got. It was more than compensated for my air. Yes. Well, very nice. And I did not go out to eat to have any other beverages that they were 
trying to lure and tempt me with. <laughs> oh, uh, much you're a much stronger man than I am. Then, at least after I the mean, dive, it was I tempting though. Nice. Well, they were out there. The charter boat was out uh, 14 miles, and then one of the engines went down. So they limped their way in at 10 miles an hour, <clears throat> and yeah. as a compensation, even though it wasn't a, um, it was a friend's charter, uh -huh. so they had done pretty good up until that point, so they decided to go out and uh, eat and be merry in compensation for not having a full day of uh, looking for fish. Uh -huh. The key item, that whole docking down there was just jammed with fishermen. A lot more than we have up here, so their access has got to be easier than ours. Uh, they were saying the water temperature is nine degrees colder than this time last year and colder than normal. And it was 44 degrees. Huh. To me, it seems, I, I don't know, mentally, I just seemed warmer, but. Well, this is May. Of, yeah. Well, that's true. So you, you didn't. Other than prop inspections, you didn't see anything really interesting then? Nope, that was enough, and it was very fine. was going to go out during the week, but the weather was this not conducive. How about you, Jim? Were you able to get out at all? No, I have not gotten wet the past week. Well, I didn't either, so I can't give you too much grief. But I'm looking forward to Sunday. So you, see, I, I'm not going to be able to make it Sunday. It's Mother's Day. <laughs> do her a favor leave home yeah well I've got my mom my mother-in-law my wife so yeah you would think that would be a gift it wouldn't you <laughs> so yeah that that day's pretty well shot for me let's see so when how does your Minuteman schedule kick in <laughs> I got gear in the back of the truck right now what are you talking about when does it kick in <laughs> well, it might be an opportunity next week. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if my yeah, there's nothing to say that my vehicle has to drive into work. You know, <laughs> work just happens to be in a line between where I live and where the boat dock is. <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 loaded. All my gear is in the vehicle. Like I said earlier, I topped off my other tank, which I now have to empty because I'm in. I'm back in the viz time again. So, I just look, and if there's a tank in my back of the trunk, then it's it's has its viz right there. Yeah, yeah. This last tank I had sucked down pretty good when when Richard went and hooked it up to the compressor. He's like, "Did you mean to suck it down this low?" <laughs> For a minute, I thought he was going to accuse me of being you. Hey, I resemble that, Mark. <laughs> it is unusual to to get a tank there and have vacuum on it. Yeah. Well, this one was 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 pretty vacuous. And, I, and I'm trying to remember what I was diving that I went that low. Because I can remember going that low, but I can't remember when. Yeah, I, I'm not burning the tank right now yet because wetsuiting, I'm only still good for half hour to 40 oh. minutes. So you're not even talking a little over 1,000 pounds. Yeah. Well, the weird thing about it is I want to say that the last that, that tank was probably, gosh, this is a bad thing to say, turkey dive. Really? Yeah. I mean, I've done what some. Tank? I was going to say, what tank did you use up at the marina museum? Yours. <laughs> oh. That's <laughs> a that's the best type of air if somebody else's. <laughs> I forgot that. It would have only been a little better had it been nitrox. Yeah. Well he's he's mentioned that nitrox is coming. 
Well, I know Mr. Meester down there at Wolf's is trying to get in so we can start getting nitrox from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he was telling me today. So how is the underwater preserve doing? Oh, it's there waiting for more members to support it. Always looking for more members. So what's the website? Dive SWMUP for Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. Now, we've put that on the clip side, have we not? I'll have to take a look, see if we've added that. We might need to add that. Because if we have it, we should do at least a link to it. Yeah, there's a there's a link there. And I, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I maybe haven't done that. I'll have to go and do that if I haven't. Uh, so, let's see. We talked about, uh, so y- you can join. Basic membership is $25, and we'll certainly take more than that. You can go do a family membership for 60 gold membership for 100 or donations starting at $1. So if you want to give and support a good cause. And what do they get with that, Jim, if they... For the basic membership, uh, with the membership card, you will get 28, right now if you take advantage of them, 28 uh, free air fills from dive shops all over the state. Yep, and So you know, it's, you're paying $25 for membership and getting 28 air fills. Can't beat that. That's a great deal. And so we talked about each week. We'll talk about a new shop who's sponsoring. There's still room, I understand, if, if a dive shop wants to get on this. We're getting to that prime time of the season. But uh, next one, it looks like up on the list is SAS Subaquatic Sports and Service, www.sasdive.com. Uh, They're one of the sponsoring dive shops that you can get up to four air fills with a membership if you happen to be in the area. That's in Battle Creek. They're just not- north. Yeah, I was going to say they're just north of the airport there in Battle Creek on Helmer Road. Yep, 347 North Helmer Road. And Battle for Creek, people Michigan. who are doing the Wednesday night dives? Yes. Wednesday night dives, right. Hey, you can't beat that. It's a good reason to go and do the Wednesday night dive. It's almost it's like if you're a member of the, the uh, preserve, now you got free air. Yeah. So if you happen to you hear us talk about Gull Lake, you go do a you know go do a dive in Gull Lake, and afterwards you come and top off your tanks over at SAS. Absolutely. And you can say what uh, you can talk to Rick and his wife, who are almost always there. And we had him on the show a little while ago. It's probably been a year and a half, two years ago. He was on so. Rick SAS. Their phone number there is uh, 269-968-8551, and the website is sasdivedive.com, and they've given the preserve four air fills, and we thank them for that. Yes, we do. So you got anything to to uh, pitch, Mac? Well, no, but other divers other than us have been out there. Uh, Sweeney and crew uh, got out again last week. Uh, we're up at uh, Gull Lake. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, they've got it planned for this Sunday. Uh, they got a full house going out to Havana. I think uh, Jim is trying to get his uh, his boat water ready, ready and also to join them. Excellent. Yeah, Havana. God, I'm, I'm upset I'm going to miss that. The problem is that I'm getting so late getting out into the, the great big lake. By the time I'm going to be able to get out and do some diving with them, they're going to be doing the, the deep stuff. And I don't need my first dive on Lake Michigan of the season to be uh, – 
you know, Ann Arbor Five or the Ironsides. Like to at least ease into a couple relatively mm-hmm. shallow dives. Well, Jim, you got anything else you want to plug before we we get going? No. Had a busy week of uh, scuba in the news this week and got the plug in for the shop, for the preserve. We talked about we got a dive coming up on Sunday. Looks like we're going to have two full boats. I've got, uh, well, Richard's got, or, yeah, Bob has four on his boat and I've got two, three, four plus me on my boat. Oh, wow. So that could be nine divers. Wow. That I just hope cool. I get my boat ready to go. Yeah. Have a little Probably. problem with the cooling system right now. The cooling, like for the for the engine? Yeah. It huh. may be just a bad sensor, but yeah. it's telling well, me it's running in the red, so I'm well, testing did, it out. Didn't we run into that towards the end of last season as well? Seems like we used to we had to watch that temperature pretty close. Yeah. 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 Well I've I'm doing some testing on it and tore it apart today, checked out some things, flushed it all real well. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, gonna say that water jacket, you know, I wonder if there was something clogged in there or something. It's possible. I'm you know, I've I've done a lot of flushing, so I'm probably getting to do some more testing on it tomorrow. Okay. Put a plug in for the temperature buoy out there near the cook plant. I ah, it's on the club site. It's on the uh, Facebook club site, and I just send it to you so you can kick it out to people out there if they're interested. At least they'll know what we're talking about when we see the buoy, and they can eyeball what the temperatures are and the wave heights and all sorts of wonderful things. Yeah, that buoy is is a great tool, and we've talked about that for the last several years. Uh, gives us temperature at different points from the surface all the way down. I think was it sixty six feet? Is that the last sensor in the array? I think the last one's 55.7 feet. Yeah, there it is, 55.7. And let's see, just for, what are we at today? When is this last updated? Yeah, 45.7 on the surface and 42.8 at 55 feet. Yeah, which is actually warmer than 49 feet. Interesting how that goes. Uh, let's see, is there any other things? Well, what I, you know, I like that it also, because the temperature's nice, even though that really doesn't deter us, but the wind speed, the gust speed, and then the wave height and frequency, you can learn an awful that's, lot about that. Yeah, that's yeah. the one we, we look at is height. Well, the wind has a lot to do with it, too, and where it's coming from. Because mm-hmm. you get the wind, you can have the waves. Yeah, so they're, they're saying that right now, as of this moment, it is 1.9 feet significant wave height. So that is certainly diveable, but not necessarily comfortable. Uh, we always used to use a standard. Anything over six was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No first timers over three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want a really good ladder, too, when you have that. Yeah. Well, sometimes you don't even need the ladder. You just kind of wait for the wave and you step into it, into the boat. Yeah, you just don't, you just don't <laughs> want to have the platform to smack you in the head. Though. Oh, yeah. That yeah. ruins your day. Yeah. And you, and you, you got to watch the prop, too. You can, that can slice a f- oh, foot man. pretty quick. So, yeah, it's great that they got it out. It seems like it's out earlier this year because wasn't it like June or something last year that they had problems with it? It was a little uh, later last year, yeah. Yeah. So and that buoy is put out by, they used to say University of Michigan, but now it's the last couple of seasons been saying Michigan Tech. So the UGLOS, Upper Great Lakes Observation System, has that buoy, and this is the one near the Cook Nuclear Plant, which is in a very convenient location for us. Well, I say it's that time of the show. 
All, All right. right. If you're ready. I'm not I'm not sure that the the enthusiasm is justified but appreciated. Uh, scuba diver received the following text from his neighbor. I'm so sorry, Bob, but I've been riddled with guilt and I have to confess. I've been tapping your wife day and night when you're not around. In fact, I'm not getting any at home, but that's no excuse. I can no longer live with the guilt and I hope you'll accept my sincere apology with my promise it won't happen again. The man, anguished and betrayed, goes into his home and starts accusing his wife. He gets into a heated argument. A few moments later, the text rings back through the phone. He says, sorry, my bad. I meant Wi-Fi, not wife. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I, I warned you. A little typo can really do you in. Yeah, it's, it's one of those... Autocorrect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what you—that's what you should blame it on—is autocorrect. Uh, if you're yeah. smart. I'm not sure that my bad's going to really uh, make a big difference right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to heal any wounds. <laughs> Until next time, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And remember, we didn't harm any pink sharks in the making of tonight's show. Mm-hmm.